You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. To support this podcast, go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click Donate. We don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. We're all bringing to the sacred text uh, our own experience. We're looking at the text through our own experience, and it's that experience that determines not only the questions we ask of the text, but even the answers we get back from the text. This is Herb Montgomery with Renewed Heart Ministries, and I want to welcome you to episode 230 of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. It's the podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice as we engage the work of uh, survival, uh, resistance, liberation, restoration, and transformation. Our, Our title this week is from the Q Scholarship, Against Enticing Little Ones, and it's Satan's Gospel Q 17, 1 through 2. It is necessary for enticements to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It's better for him if a millstone is put around his neck and he's thrown into the sea than that he should entice one of these little ones. Our companion texts are Matthew 18, 16 through 17. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Uh, Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling blocks come. Uh, Luke 17, 1 through 2, Jesus said to his disciples, occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. We stumble when we're learning to walk. And this week, we're focusing on uh, those who are are walking toward a safer, more just, and compassionate world. And we'll be considering how, as they, they move forward, others will actively obstruct their path rather than, than smoothing it out for them. Obstructionists, what they do is they place stumbling blocks in the way of those moving forward, causing uh, their advancement to be harder than it should be. And and we are, again, we're considering one of Jesus's sayings about little ones. And I wrote last year in uh, Thanksgiving that God reveals only to children. I wrote these words, the family structure in Palestine in the first century was a hierarchical pyramid with the male patriarch at the top. On the bottom rung of the social ladder, below slaves were children. See Galatians 4.1. Social status is typically evaluated by the degree to which one has both power and resources. Those with large Large measures of control over power and resources operate in higher social positions, while those with very little access to power and resources live at the bottom. Children have access to neither power nor resources. The typical avenues to power and control of resources are education, income, and work. In our societies, children have none of these, and they are vulnerable to abuse and neglect, so child advocacy and children's rights are much needed. Discrimination on the basis of race, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, national origin, religion, disability, color, or ethnicity are also compounded when they apply to children. Springboarding off of those those words, uh, our focus in this week's saying is directed towards the little ones that Jesus spoke of, and and, and those are the most vulnerable sectors of society. Now, in the Greek, little ones, it can can not only refer to children, but it, it can also apply to any who are vulnerable to exploitation by the status quo. It doesn't have to mean a young person. It can also refer to a person's rank, 
or their influence within a society, which is it's perfectly applicable to children, but it's not solely exclusively for children. Uh, Christianity has a long history in doing damage to, to our most vulnerable and our most marginalized. Let's talk about uh, Native people for a moment. One example in this history is the way that Christian preachers and missionaries use the Canaanite conquest and, and genocide stories in the Bible to legitimize the genocide of Native peoples here in the U.S. This is from Philip Jenkins in his book, Laying Down the Sword, Why We Can't Ignore the Bible's Violent Verses. This is page 133. He writes, Biblical notions of extirpation influenced colonial America from the earliest days of settlement. In a track publicizing the New Virginia settlement, Robert Gray expressed the hope that Indians might accept Christianity, but if they did not, Biblical commands were clear. Saul had his kingdom rent from him and his posterity because he spared Agag, whom God would not have spared. So acceptable a service is it to destroy idolaters whom God hateth. So during the colonial era, many New England preachers, such as Cotton Mather, they compared the the Pequot Indians to to modern Ammonites and, and New England uh, to a modern Israel, and you can you can see uh, uh, I'll put a reference to the documentation for that in this week's uh, e-site, um, uh, Magna Nalia Christi Americana, Volume One, page five thirty three is is where you can find Cotton Mather's words, but I'll, I'll put a link to it. And with this interpretation, uh, if Saul had his kingdom uh, taken away because he failed to to utterly destroy the Ammonites, the new American Christians. They were to, to they, they were not to fail in their complete annihilation of their modern native Ammonites if they if they wanted to ensure their place on this continent. They're, they're what they called their promised land. And the genocide of, of native peoples um, was rooted in Christianity, in Christians' lethal interpretation of violent Bible passages. And it was it was a genocide that they actually believed God had commanded them to execute using these Canaanite narratives. And, and let's talk about slavery for a moment. During the abolitionist years leading up to the American Civil War, many Christian preachers, they quoted Leviticus's passages uh, that affirmed slavery, and, and, and they claimed that neither Paul nor Jesus had reversed those passages. And one famous preacher, ironically named Moses Stewart, uh, he, he wrote, not one word has Christ said to annul the Mosaic law while it lasted. Neither Paul nor Peter have uttered one. Neither of these have said to Christian masters, instantly free your slaves. Yet they lived under Roman laws concerning slavery, which were rigid to the last degree. How is it explicable on any ground when we view them as humane and benevolent teachers, and especially as having a divine commission? How is it possible that they should have not declared and explicitly so against a uh, 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 something so evil in itself. So he, he, Moses Stewart, he confidently pronounced 
that those that are calling for the end of slavery, he said they must either give up the, the New Testament authority or abandon their fiery course which they're pursuing. Either either abandon abolitionism or abandon your New Testament, one of the two. And another minister, this time a Southern Methodist who was named J.W. Tucker, he proclaimed to his Confederate audience um, who were fighting for their right to, to own slaves, he, he, he preached, your cause is the cause of God, the cause of Christ of humanity. It is a conflict with truth, uh, with error, uh, of, of Bible with northern infidelity, of pure Christianity with northern fanaticism. And Tucker's rhetoric, it sounds almost identical to the rhetoric of, of Christians today, too. Um, both both Moses's logic, Moses Stewart's logic, and, and Matthew Tucker's uh, rhetoric, um, it, it sounds a lot like the rhetoric of Christians today as they condemn uh, the, the movement in many faith traditions, many Christian faith traditions, too, towards the affirmation of LGBTQ people. And, and let's talk about women for a moment. Christianity also has a long history with patriarchy and misogyny. R- Roman Catholic writer John Paul Boyer, um, in his uh, work, Some Thoughts on Ordination of Women, he explains, um, this is from the monthly bulletin of the Church of St. Mary the Virgin, he writes, uh, being a Jew, being a Palestinian, being a first century man, all of these are what we might call in Aristotelian metaphysical language, the accidents of Christ's humanity. But his being a man rather than a woman is of the substance of his humanity. He could have been a 20th century Chinese and been culturally different, cultural differences notwithstanding, much the same person he was, but he could not have been a woman without having been a different sort of personality altogether. That's a horrific statement on, on for both um, uh, Chinese folks and, and for women. But uh, w- women as scholars like Jacqueline Grant uh, she rightly states in her book, White Women's Christ and Black Women's Jesus, that the most significant use of, of this kind of an argument, um, the same one that John Paul Boyer was using, it actually came from Pope Paul VI on October 15, 1976, when he approved and, and he published the following declaration. I'm going to read just a little bit of his words. The Christian priesthood is therefore a sac- of a sacramental nature. The priest is a sign the supernatural effectiveness of which comes from the ordination received, but a sign that must be perceptible and which the faithful must be able to recognize with ease. The whole sacramental economy is in fact based upon natural signs or symbols imprinted upon the human psychology. Sacramental signs, says St. Thomas, represent what they signify by natural resemblance. The same natural resemblance is required for persons as for this. When Christ's role in the Eucharist is to be expressly Sacramental, expressed sacramentally, there would not be this natural resemblance which must exist between Christ and his minister if the role of Christ were not taken by a man. In such a case, it would be difficult to see in the minister the image of Christ, for Christ himself was and remains a man. And never mind that the church's own creation story states clearly that both male and female were made in the image of God. 
Um, there have been long, uh, there's a long history of, of interpretations of, of these stories that have marginalized and, and wholly excluded and even damaged women personally and institutionally. And because of the patriarchal nature of, of many sectors of Christianity, and despite the fact that there are feminists and womanist Christians, some have gone so far as to say that Christianity is purely a, a man's religion. So we've talked about native lives, we've talked about uh, uh, slavery, we've talked about women. Let's finish up by giving our last example uh, uh, of stumbling blocks with uh, LGBTQ fear. Um, anyone who lived through the 1980s here in the U.S. knows all too well how Christianity has done untold damage to the LGBTQ community. Um, Christianity legitimized uh, the innate homophobia of straight parishioners uh, through uh, interpretations that are at their core trans, bi, genderqueer, and homophobic. homophobic. And for a history that reaches back into the 70s that, that outlines all of this, the Southern Poverty Law Center offers an what I think is an excellent, excellent uh, history of the modern Christian anti-gay movement. And I'll put a link to that in this week's e-site, starting with Anita Bryant in 1977. But uh, just a quick read of, of this history um, there on their website, it demonstrates how monstrously Christians have mischaracterized this community and, and used damaging interpretations of the Bible to bolster their mischaracterization. And Jay Grimstead, who is a founder of the Coalition on Revival, he bluntly stated, he's famous for stating that homosexuality makes God, homosexuality makes God vomit. And, and many similar arguments are rhetorically identical uh, to those Christians in the 1800s who, who uh, uh, these arguments were used in their opposition to ending slavery. The, the, the Christian moral majority, remember, didn't get their start opposing abortion or gay people, but by opposing integration after Brown versus the Board of Education. Uh, they began a network of private Christian schools to make sure their white children didn't have to attend uh, school with black and brown children. And much of the the rhetoric around the, 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 the Bible that, that uh, supported slavery or racism um, can be recycled to, to uh, also be damaging to the LGBTQ community. And I've given you, once again, four examples of how interpretations of our sacred text have done and they continue to do damage to those who are most vulnerable within our society. Now, I also wrote two weeks ago that interpretations are not eternal. They change with time. As we see the harmful fruit of present interpretations, we can make those interpretations give way to new ones in the hope that new interpretations will bear the fruit of life. And if we see that our new interpretations also do harm, we'll change them too. The goal is to continue to seek life-giving interpretations for all, work with people's well-being and thriving in our hearts, and transform our world into a safe, just, compassionate home for us all. Anything less is not faithful to Jesus or the spirit of our various sacred texts. Every time you're tempted to mistake your interpretation for the sacred text itself, remember that interpretations are temporary. It's okay for them to change, as long as what they change too is life-giving for all. In each of these above examples that we've looked at this week, you can come up with Bible interpretations to oppose valuing and protecting native peoples and lands. Uh, you can come up with Bible interpretations that oppose ending slavery. Um, you can come up with biblical interpretations that promote uh, opposing 
equality for women. And you can even come up with uh, biblical interpretations that oppose seeking justice for the LGBTQ community. And some claim that they're just reading the Bible plainly, reading the Bible as it reads. Um, but, but we never see things objectively. Uh, as the saying goes, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. We're all bringing to the sacred text uh, our own experience. We're looking at the text through our own experience. And it's that experience that determines not only the questions we ask of the text, but even the answers we get back from the text. Plain readings are not plain. Um, they're read through the lens of our own paradigms and our own fears. And this is one reason why it's so vital, if we're going to make our world a safe and, and, and just home for everyone, that we learn to listen to stories and experiences and the interpretations of our sacred texts that come from the most vulnerable communities in our society. This is how liberation theology was born. Those in South America read the Bible very differently than their colonial Christian exploiters. It's how black liberation theology was born. Black Christians in the U.S. read the Bible radically different than white Christians read it. It's how feminist and womanist theologies were born, and it's how queer theology was born. And we need these voices. We need these perspectives if we're to arrive at, at interpretations of our sacred texts that, that cease to do harm. Today, we have a broad swath of people who want nothing to do with Jesus because of the history of the church as the largest stumbling block in the path of the vulnerable in their work toward a world of justice and compassion. And they see a Christianity that seems to habitually do harm, ever landing on the wrong side of history. That They don't see a Jesus who taught survival, resistance, liberation, and justice. They don't see a Jewish Jesus on the side of the oppressed like we find in Luke 4, 18 through 19. Instead, they, instead they find a Jesus that's eclipsed by a religion that was formed in his name. And, and this is what gives me reason, great reason to pause. I know firsthand how my own faith has been fractured by watching Christian racism, misogyny, Christian homophobia, Christian transphobia, just in my local community here in West Virginia. And I love Jesus, but uh, it's a struggle even for me with that. Uh, I have zero tolerance for the kind of Christianity that my family seems to be surrounded by here where we live. And, and, and I don't apologize for, for bringing this up this week and this week's Eastside. That's what this, this saying is about. Uh, I don't believe the, the, the truth of our history. I don't think it's too harsh to share. As someone who loves the historic first century Jewish Jesus, I've just simply become disillusioned with the most vocal sectors of Christianity in our culture today. Even just this week, I, I endured disappointment again as Christians who should have been passionately living out the value of compassionate listening to the voices of the vulnerable who, who claim to believe, God, believe that God loves everyone. Instead, they were passionate to protect their own cherished theology that's been shown to be hurtful to the vulnerable. And does your God love the vulnerable or your theology? And, and which is it that should be given a priority of worth. Emily Towns states once again, when you start with an understanding that God loves everyone, justice isn't very far behind. But what happens when you believe that God loves everyone and that doesn't lead to justice? What about when the ones preaching God loves everyone, they are the stumbling block for those who are working toward a safer, just, more compassionate world for the vulnerable? And, and as a Christian myself, I, I take this week's saying seriously. 
It was said to Jesus' followers, and we who take his name today must allow this week's saying to confront us at our, at our deepest core level. Woe to the one through whom stumbling blocks come. It is better for them if a millstone is put around their neck and they are thrown into the sea than that they should cause one of the vulnerable to stumble. Heart group application this week. This week I want you to spend some time uh, with this e-site, with the, this above article that I'm that in the podcast. And number one, as a group, discuss what challenges this week's e-site creates for you. Uh, what does this podcast stir up? And number two, discuss together where you feel encouraged by this week's e-site. Maybe you're one of the vulnerable who, who is affirmed by, by some of this history being called out and named. Um, maybe encouragement comes from, from just hearing that you're not alone in your feelings of frustration toward your Christianity being a, a stumbling block to so many people. But uh, what are some of the ways that you can move toward interpretations of our sacred text that are not damaging, that don't create stumbling blocks for those that are pushed to the edges of our society? Which interpretations uh, can also move you to take tangible, concrete actions um, as an individual and as a group to stand in solidarity with those that are that are walking toward a more just world rather than being part of the stumbling block um, walk with those that are walking toward a more just world and how can you how can you smooth out another person's way towards liberation as it says in Isaiah every valley shall be raised up every mountain and hill made low the rough sh- uh, ground shall become level the rugged places plain uh, Isaiah 44. Um, how can we engage this work of, of smoothing out the path toward liberation rather than being or placing stumbling blocks in their way? Thank you for checking in with us this week. Wherever this finds you, keep living in love. Keep engaging the work of transforming our world. Um, this past week, I was invited to, to share in a series on nonviolence and the cross and the atonement and, and a nonviolent atonement. And you can find that series on our website. It's under the audio presentations, four presentations on Jesus's execution from four liberation perspectives. I'd love your feedback uh, on it after you listen to it. And, and to each of you who are supporting the work of Renewed Heart Ministries, again, we simply could not do what we do without you. We have a, a lot of educational events lined up for this fall, and you can support our work uh, by going to renewedheartministries.com and clicking donate, or you can always mail your support to Renewed Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 1211, Lewisburg, West Virginia, 24901. And remember, every amount helps. Thank you so much. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week.